0: This is episode number 310, How to Be More Happy and Optimistic with Dr. Sasha Hines. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well being. And I'm your host, Sonia.
1: that feeling of overcoming, of enduring something challenging, difficult, emerging from a difficult period of your life in a new way and feeling like I'm a different person because I experienced this and my life is psychologically richer. I understand myself more. I have more empathy for other human beings.
0: I found a new gear, an inner gear that I didn't even know I had. I'm really excited about today's episode because it covers all of my favorite topics that has to do with well-being. I could talk for hours about happiness, fulfillment, well-being, and how those things can be in the same circles, but they're not the same thing. And today's guest, Dr. Sasha Hines, is an expert in everything positive psychology. She is a developmental psychologist turned mindset coach. Her background is quite impressive as she received her B.A. from Harvard, her master's in applied psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, and she has her Ph.D. in developmental psychology from Columbia. She was one of the first 33 people in history to receive a degree in positive psychology. And to be honest, that master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania is something that has been very curious to me for a number of years, I found the field of positive psychology in, uh, I'd say it was around 2012 with the first book that I read. And I have been obsessed with it ever since reading books by authors like Martin Seligman, Barbara Fredrickson, and many more. And if you are interested in that topic, I highly recommend going down that path. In Dr. Sasha Hines' private coaching practice, she grounds everything in psychological science. And she teaches the tools to change lives for good. In this podcast, we talked about what is positive psychology. And how to look at self-help, because self-help is not always helpful. We talk about the importance of and how to sit with negative emotions, because a lot of times we just try and shy away from it because it's really uncomfortable. We talked about the difference between coaching versus therapy, and that's a topic that I'm always interested in hashing out further because I'm a coach as well. And sometimes that could be a gray area, and it's important that whenever people need help from a therapist that they go to a therapist. But a lot of therapists can do coaching, but coaches cannot do therapy. You're going to walk away from this podcast knowing how to live a psychologically rich life, and you're going to have a couple of tools in your tool belt. The one that I am excited for you to learn about is the PERMA acronym, and I don't want to spoil it, so you'll just have to listen for more. If you like topics of high performance and well-being, make sure that you subscribe to my newsletter at sanyalooney.com newsletter, where I write articles and share podcast episodes with you to help you be better every day. And that's the mission of this show. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe because then you won't miss any future episodes. And that also will help other people find it if you are also finding it helpful. I am in Boulder, Colorado right now. I lived in Boulder, Colorado for about nine years before I moved up to Canada, and I'm really excited to be here. It was an act of courage on my part to come down here. Well, number one, my husband drove the 24 hours over three days to get here because rental cars were $6,000 for almost a month. And we decided that I would fly alone with the kids. So I boarded a plane with a four-month-old and a two-year-old by myself, and everything fortunately went pretty well, and we made it to the other side. And now I'm going to be doing some races here. I'm doing a race in Steamboat Springs next weekend, and then I'm also going to be doing the Breck Epic at the end of the month. And it's going to be really interesting because the last time I did the Breck Epic, I lived in Colorado, and I was sort of the queen of Breck. I had won a bunch of races and set course records in Breckenridge while I lived here, But now riding and racing at altitude is still something I'm learning how to do now that I live at 100 feet and the race is going to start at 10,000 feet. So that's going to be pretty interesting. The Breck Epic is also special to me because it was the first stage race that I ever did. And I I can't remember the exact year I did it for the first time. I want to say it was 2010 or 2011 as a co-ed duo. And then I came back and I won it as a solo female in 2012 or maybe it was 2013. I don't really know, but I'm really excited to be going back and I'm really excited to connect with all of you who are in Colorado. It feels so good to be home and to feel like I'm still part of this community here. And yeah, it's, it's hard sometimes to live in Canada where I love living there. I love so much about it, but I have so much history here in Colorado and I still feel like it's a huge part of who I am here that I had to leave behind when I moved. If you're interested in following anything with my racing, make sure you go to my Instagram. That is at Sonia Looney. Okay, let's get into today's episode with Dr. Sasha Hines. Dr. Hines, welcome to the show. Hi, so good to be here. I'm really excited about this conversation because it's basically everything that I love thinking about and talking about and that I spend all of my spare time learning about.
1: Me too. Me too. By the way, you're such a badass. I was just saying that I live, in, I live in the mountains in a mountain town. So I have much respect for how hard mountain biking is. Not easy.
0: Have you hopped on a, a bike yet?
1: Not in many years. For being an athlete, i fairly clumsy. So the whole bike, feet clipped in situation <laughs> tends to go very wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> I tried to avoid the bike, And then the first time I ever went mountain biking, which was now like 20 years ago, my then boyfriend, now husband, took me on a trail and didn't tell me that on the down, like as we were going down, that it's probably a good idea for me to ride up, not in the saddle, not on the seat. So I could not walk. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I was so sore. I remember being like, this is terrible. Why does anyone like to do this? But. Yes. Now I see them when people are going down the hill, I'm like, Oh, right. They're standing up on their pedals. That makes sense. (laughs) That's, that's too bad, but also kind of funny at the same time. I mean, yeah. So I don't know bikes and I have not, I'm not friends, but I, I play ice hockey, ice ski. I do other, other things in this mountain town, but not biking for me.
0: So I was looking at your educational history and I thought it was very impressive. Can you tell us about your, your history? Yeah, I mean, I think we will probably get into this,
1: but I was a world class achievement junkie and really set my sights on going to Harvard. That was the big brass ring for me. And um, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit, but probably in middle school was really when I started thinking, like, that's where I want to go to school and was just laser focused on that's where I want to go and what I want to do. And I ended up getting an early action. And once I got in, I had this sort of total unraveling letdown. I'm like, I don't even know what I want to study, who I am, what I care about, not, you know, just felt so lost. And, you know, that feeling of like, I had this goal that was structuring and ordering my life. And then once it was achieved, I sort of, I felt completely out to sea. Anyhow, I ended up, I went to Harvard undergrad. It was not my most successful academic experience and then I vowed never to go back to school after I left. <laughs> I was like, "I am done. I'll never go back to school again." And, but lucky me, because I ended up working with a coach in my early twenties. Uh, I worked with a woman who was a life coach, which was so new back then. I think this was like two thousand and one, maybe, 02. like it was really early on in the in the years where life coach was just like, who even knew what that was. So, and I loved working with her. I think having been an athlete as a kid and working on my mental fitness, like not just sort of healing work, but actually really working with someone to make me more resilient, enhancing the more of like the development enhancing work than the sort of healing work, which felt so exciting to do and felt fun. So I loved working with her and I started reading books by Marty Seligman and other psychologists. And so that was how I got introduced to the field of positive psychology. And back when there were listservs and uh, she sent me an email, my coach at the time, who's now a dear friend and colleague, but she sent me an email that said, you know, we're Marty Seligman's launching this positive psychology program, a master's in positive psychology at UPenn. It was the first year. So it was 2005. And on a lark, I just applied and got in. And that was that. So that really, I vowed never to go back to school, but I did. And I went back to school for a long time after that. I went to Penn and then I went to Columbia to get my PhD in developmental psych. So that was ended up being quite a long trajectory, but I absolutely loved it.
0: Yeah. I found the field of positive psychology in 2010. And it was a book by Marty Seligman. And I thought, this is so awesome because in my racing a lot of times people would ask me you know how do you do the things that you do because i tend to go after the hardest races in the world and you know how do you maintain a smile on your face or how do you keep going and i was asking myself well how do i do that and that's how i fell kind of stumbled upon that and ever since i've just been obsessed with it and i i have my masters in electrical engineering but i wish now i'm kind of wishing i had done a different path but we all that's have to so take cool. our you know our paths to get to where we're going and ultimately I think that a lot of times people think about education and education is important, but there is a lot of space to do your own education and to learn about things where you can take it into your own life, even if you don't have a PhD in it.
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, never more than now. I think that the world has given everyone an opportunity to geek out and learn more about stuff that they are interested in. There's just so much available, whether that's, masterclasses, courses, amazing books, podcasts. There's just endless amount of stuff to learn. I think that actually can be its own trap. I call it procrastinate learning with my clients. Sometimes I'm like wrapping their knuckles about their procrastinate learning. Yeah, <laughs> they need well, to create, not just consume.
0: Create. Yeah. I totally can understand that. And sometimes I'll fall into that trap as well but I wanted to ask you about the field of self-help because it's really interesting. You can procrastinate learn all day long. You can listen to podcasts, read books, like learn all of these things, but never actually practice them in your own life Mm -hmm. or even be able to help other people with these things, but never actually look in the mirror and work on that stuff yourself. And sometimes I find that some of the self-help could be like, I'm trying to become the perfect person instead of I'm trying to just understand myself. So in your work, How do you help people work through having a better relationship with self-help? I think this
1: is honestly the central question of my career. I think I loved this idea from positive psychology. And I want to clarify, positive psychology is not happyology. It is not suggesting that we should just be happy. It's a subfield in the larger field of psychology that is focused on health, well-being, Optimal human functioning and the causes and correlates of well being. It's so important to understand that it's just a part of a larger field. It was really conceived to address the imbalance in the field of psychology, that we really focus primarily on disease, disorder, and dysfunction, as opposed to what makes life worth living, you know, and how do we actually grow and develop and mature over time to live a good life, to feel that at the end of our days, we get to look back on our life and think, yeah. You know, that was meaningful and and I have wonderful relationships and so much joy. And I'm proud of myself and all of you know, and really trying to understand this other side of the spectrum, which at the time, and this was sort of you know, in the early aughts, there really was a, a gross imbalance in the research that was being produced at the time. So that's changed a bit, but it's still the balance is still not equal, nonetheless. Yeah, this is the what you're what you're saying about self-help. But like this is the central question of my career. I think that if you want to do the work of developing and enhancing oneself and becoming more cognitively and psychologically and emotionally mature, your development doesn't stop at 25. You know, when you hit your physical maturation, you don't necessarily hit your cognitive and psychological maturation. So that continues throughout the whole lifespan. So The fact that there's no formal structure to do this work of growth and development for me was so frustrating. So I created a community called Mind Your Mind. That's exactly what we do. It's sort of, you know, like mental fitness for women. It's a mind gym, a personal development gym for women with the same concept of you have to get involved in the doing, you know, it's, I, and I use this analogy all the time with my clients because I once was a tennis player and I was on the court all the time I will tell you once I did get, I had some sessions with Jim Lair, who's like a famed sports psychologist, <laughs> which was interesting, but I used to play tennis pretty seriously. And the idea that you can practice your forehand or your backhand, or, you know, your backhand slice without actually getting on the court and hitting a million balls is crazy. No one would do that. You wouldn't read a book and then decide that you're going to be an amazing tennis player. It's not gonna happen. Anyway, we've all agreed that the way to learn a new sport is to get on the court or to get on the ski slopes or to get on a mountain bike and practice it and stink and fall and get back up and try it again. Right. And so there's a praxis that's involved with it. It's not just theory, it's a praxis. A you know, you have to go practice it. There's a doing. And in self-help, we have our stacks self-help books on our bedside table that we never engage in the exercises with, we don't engage with them with other human beings. So we're not actually learning in community and, and the hard things that it's suggesting that we go do, we're like hard pass. Let me move on to the next chapter. Right. So this is why I, you know, I feel so strongly that like we need to be doing this work in community and we actually have to be doing it.
0: I like that you said doing it in community. And I think that that can be really challenging for people because it requires you to be vulnerable in front of a group, especially if you're doing like group coaching or even like doing something in a community. It is. It
1: does feel a little daunting at first. You think, oh my gosh, I'm on the island of misfit toys all by myself. Nobody has these crazy thoughts that I do nobody struggles with the anxiety or the doubt or the self criticism that i do right this is uniquely my problem but the beautiful thing about creating a community and doing this work within a community is that you so quickly see oh i'm not alone isn't that interesting the three people that just got coached that i was you know witness to their coaching they all have you know variations on the theme that i have in my head and when the, the, and the skill that you're practicing in that, by doing that, by watching someone else get coached, you are practicing as the observer, that self-distancing, distancing from a narrative, recognizing it as a narrative, as separate from the human being. So if you, Sonia, were getting coached, I would be able to see, oh, there's Sonia. And then there's a story that she has about her competencies or about her doubt or about what's possible for her, what's not possible for her, and i can see them as two separate things. There's you and then there's the story that you're telling. And when we're embedded in our own story, we see it all as one, right? We we can't see beyond the story that we have. It's like the lens that we see through and we can't we we have a hard time distancing ourselves. So in coaching and watching other people get coached, you're actually practicing that skill of distancing. Of distancing and you're you're doing it with other people, but in watching other people, you begin to distance self-distance too. Cause you're thinking, well, that kind of sounds like my story. It kind of sounds like the, the thoughts that I have. Maybe there's me and then there's my thoughts about myself, and they're two separate things, right? So you're practicing that, which is a psychological skill.
0: Yeah, I had Ethan Cross on this podcast, and he's does a lot of emotional regulation research and I think in Michigan and self-distancing in regards to self-talk is one of those really important things that I learned from him.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's so much cool research on, and it sounds really dopey and weird to talk to yourself in the third person, but it's enormously effective, right? So just in using your own name and talking to yourself, the way that you would speak to a friend, you can downshift your nervous system and help regulate your nervous system just the way you would if, if you were having a bad day and you were feeling worked up about something and a friend, you know, gave you a loving word or, you know, made you calm down or helped you kind of find your bearings. It's, it works in the same
0: way. So I wanted to talk to you about achievement and happiness and the happiness horizon. And a lot of times people say, I'll be happy when I achieve something, whether it be like, weight loss or they win a race or they finish a race or they buy a house or they get married. Like they, they think that this thing in the future that they're working towards is going to make them happy. And you mm-hmm. sort of alluded to that in the beginning of this conversation of, okay, if I go to Harvard and get my bachelor's, then I'll be happy. Totally. So, you know, how, how can people be aware that number one that they're doing this and then where does that feeling of, Oh, like I feel fulfilled come from because it's not coming from the achievement that's coming in the future.
1: Yeah, and interestingly, I mean, this is a great question because in Seligman's model of, you know, in his theory of well being, there are five components of well being, and achievement is one of them. So it's positive emotions, engagement, meaning, relationships, and achievement. So achievement is there. And I will say, I think achievement is the most controversial of the five. I do think that achievement uniquely contributes to our well being, but I think we need to be very nuanced about what we mean by achievement. It was added to the model last. We were actually it was like in our class that he, we one of my colleagues who ended up at Stanford challenged him, and he ended up included the A in the Perma model. But I think that there is a real dark side to the A in Perma or achievement, you know, in in this theory of well-being, which is just a goal in and of itself. First of all, is not necessarily good. There are a lot of goals that are set that do enormous damage and evil in the world and there are the there are the fulfillment of goals. So we really need to be we need to dialogue and have a conversation about this because it matters. It's like this this idea in self help world like goal setting is good as a blanket statement is not accurate. You know, we can set goals that are wonderful for for humanity and for ourselves and we can set goals that are, you know, detrimental to our well-being and also harm other humans and harm the planet. So You know, I think we have to be very careful about the kind of goals that we're setting. And I also think we need to be thoughtful for us personally. Is like, is it an intrinsically or extrinsically motivated goal? Why are we setting this goal? Why does it matter to us? And really understanding that. I mean, we adapt. We adapt. It's hedonic adaptation. One of the biases of our brain, one of the lovely heuristics or rules of our brain is that we adapt we adapt to the good, we adapt to the bad. It's, it's great that we do this. It's what makes being a mother in those first year of being a mom and you're like doing things you can't imagine you would ever do. Like I've spent my whole day with up to my elbows and feces and cleaning and like not with, and you're just feel like such a mess. And you think about your life, you know, six months prior to that, you're know, like it's unrecognizable. You couldn't have anticipated. You can prepare for what you'd have to face in those early months when you're especially with your first kid. Right. It's just like what, you know, complete upending of your of your world. But you adapt to it all of a sudden like the blowout that you're like, I'll never be able to handle that. You're like, yeah, I got this. Right not such a big deal. So we adapt to the good, the bad, and the ugly, but we also adapt to the things that we think are going to make life amazing. So, you know, for an athlete, it might be a particular achievement or making a certain team or running at a certain pace or whatever it is. Like once I get hit, once I grab that brass ring, my, I will just feel worthy and valuable and awesome and amazing. And then you get there and it doesn't feel extraordinary at all. It just feels the new normal.
0: Yeah. I, um, in 2015, there's a, a racing of mountain biking called 24 hour racing. So you race your bike for 24 hours and I became world champion that year in that discipline. And when I did it, it was like weird. I was like, well, now what am I supposed to do? And it it wasn't something that something that it was my lifelong dream, even that I was working towards. And I can't even imagine, you know, Olympians and people like, like this in, in sports where they achieve this lifelong dream and then they just feel so empty. So that's why I one of the reasons I've been really interested in well-being and fulfillment and what it means to thrive, and I like this the perma model. Can, can you talk more about that? because I, mm-hmm. I think that that helps add context to achievement and to what is what are the things that make us feel good in our lives. And those aren't the things necessarily that make us feel happy in the moment either. Absolutely.
1: I think that it really helps to give people a more full-bodied understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about well-being. What does that actually mean? Well, we can reduce it to, you know, just a handful of components that contribute to our well-being. One of them is positive emotions. So, you know, just feeling good emotions, interest, awe, curiosity, joy, amusement, and so on, those are. Positive emotions, and interestingly, Barbara Fredrickson's research. I mean, she's such a brilliant, she's such a brilliant psychologist and researcher. But you know, she's been so groundbreaking on the topic of positive emotions, and we know she calls love the master positive emotion. And from her perspective, so the the definition of like what is love? Well, from her perspective, love is a shared positive emotion. So it really, truly, love is everywhere. We get to experience love, like. This is an act of love. You and I are both geeking out about a topic we both enjoy. We're both fully in the E, which is engagement, and in, in the state of flow. And so we get to engage in this, like share this shared positive emotion. And our mirror neurons are matching each other right now. If we had, you know, electrodes on our head and we were analyzing that, that's what we would see. So well-being really is a piece of that. Is feeling good is positive emotion but it's not all of it. And I think that's really important for people to understand. Like, it's
0: not just, hey, good vibes only. No, that's not at all. I and- actually hate it when it says only like good vibes. Yes, but you also need all the other range of, of life experiences and emotions to feel those good vibes.
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you so then if we sort of move on to the other things, it would be, you know, engagement, which is being in flow. The irony of being in flow is that you're actually really not conscious of any feeling. If you're really in flow as an athlete, you're so in the zone, you're not aware that you feel good. You're not aware you feel anything. You're It's like no mind. Yes, it's a transcendent state. It is, you know, we call it the, you know, it's a peak human experience because it really is transcendent. You almost lose you lose your sense of self in that state of flow. That's why it it, it feels amazing in retrospect. You look back and you're like that was awesome. But in the moment you're, you've merged with the thing that you're doing so much, you know, like you, you don't end and the object of your activity begins. Like you become one with your tennis racket or you become one with your bike. Right. So that is the E in the per model is engagement. So interestingly, engagement was the number one protective factor for people during COVID. The more you got flow and engagement, the higher your well being. And that was controlling for in a study that was done, it was actually done in Wuhan, but it was controlling for optimistic disposition and also mindfulness practices. So, above and beyond those two factors, was the degree to which you were in flow. Was, was that a
0: study that was published? Mm-hmm.
1: It was published in 2020.
0: Okay, I can, cool. I'll send you the. Yeah, I'd love to see that afterwards.
1: Yeah. But so that's PE. And then we have the r is relationships you you cannot be well truly in in any sense without positive relationships in your life we are you know animal social animals that's just the way that human beings are we co-regulate we have attachment systems we co-regulate more efficiently with other human beings positive relationships with other people is absolutely cornerstone to our well-being i would be hard pressed to find someone who self-reports as having very high satisfaction with life that doesn't have an abundance of high quality relationships.
0: Yeah. I actually wanted to ask about that because I think that that's probably something that a lot of people are lacking or even all, I hate like putting people in a box, but like people that are very driven, they tend to get, it's like a, the obsessive passion piece where like, they just can't even spend time in their relationships and they just and I'm guilty of doing this myself. I'll stop seeing my friends. I'll stop talking to my family because I get so obsessed with a topic or preparation for something that the R part tends to suffer. And then I find that I don't feel as good. So something that I've been working on actually is making my relationships almost the top priority as much as I can. And I found that I feel a lot better in my life whenever I do that, because um, I'm kind of rambling here, but a lot of us look online for relationships and there's nothing wrong with having online relationships. But if most of your relationships are online, the chances are that they aren't going to have a depth to them or an intimacy to them that you might want in person. So it can be, it can be lonely. You could have tons and tons of acquaintances. You could have millions of followers, but you could also still be really lonely at the same time.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think very well said. That's right. I think that Interestingly, there's a whole body of literature on obsessive passion and that the more obsessive the passion is, the, it's the correlated, it's an inverse correlation with well-being. So it's related to decrease in well-being, which isn't surprising, right? Kind of it's like the obsession, it's sort of a passion that takes over one's life as opposed to it being life affirming and, and accretive to your life. It sort of, it detracts from it because you become myopically focused on it.
0: Yeah. So if someone finds that they are sort of sucked into this this myopic focus and they have a really difficult time breaking that, like maybe they say, well, I don't want to spend time with my friends because I need to keep working at this thing and it's too scary. I can't take my foot off the gas. Like how can somebody start wrestling with that?
1: I mean, that's a big question I think to unravel, but for most people, I would say it's really about understanding what's the psychological threat to take the, you know, that tight grip off the handlebars or whatever, you know, the steering wheel. Like, what is it, what feels so scary about not achieving a certain level or not being as obsessive about it? What feels so compulsive? Like what, you know, it there's an aspect of it that becomes compulsive in nature, which is certainly not gonna, which is not actually contributing to well-being at all. And normally when we get into that space of compulsive behavior there's always something that seems to be at threat so if you know there's if we let go of our tight grip then something feels scary to us that something that feels important to us is going to be threatened and that could be our sense of identity you know our sense of status so maybe you're an elite athlete and you you've gotten your identity's gotten so wrapped up in being the best that you just now become a compulsive thing and you just don't know how to get off the treadmill you know that it could be that it could be, you know, a sense of autonomy. Like if I'm not, you know, that it's the way you feel control in your life. Um, it could be feeling that maybe a relationship is going to be threatened. So perhaps you're in a community that you really love. And if you aren't elite or you don't do races or participate in at the level that they do, you'll miss, you'll, you won't be accepted in a particular community, you know, and these are sort of what typically tend to be psychological threats, another one being certainty. So if I'm not training to the letter exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, et cetera, et cetera, with this kind of obsessive myopic focus, then the outcome of whatever the next race is or whatever feels maybe uncertain, like that that's the way that you kind of manage that sense of anxiety. So there's there's definitely a lot of layers. It could be many different things. But that's isn't that the fun inner work of being a human being is to understand yourself better, to know and to to explore with self inquiry, uh, and to get to know yourself. Like, why do I do what I do? Why does this feel? Why have I lost my choice, sense of choice? Like, why do I feel compelled that I I no longer have agency in this area? I, I I have to do this no matter no matter what. It's not a choice. It's a compulsion. That's a really rich area to explore, and I would say to anyone listening if you are brave enough to go explore those you know those issues you will no doubt uncover your next level of growth and development
0: yeah i think that there's a lot of good points that you made there and a lot of questions people can ask themselves with some of the ideas and reasons why people can become so focused but you can also use curiosity and you, that's one of those positive emotions that you're talking about and yeah. saying, Hmm, like, why am I like this? And then maybe it doesn't feel quite as scary to approach that because you're getting a positive emotion from curiosity.
1: Exactly. Like, like but is it it's always,
0: always best to start with curiosity. Yeah. But is it always, does it always feel good to be curious? Cause what if you're asking yourself questions about things that you're afraid to uncover and then you're not getting a positive emotion from that? Yeah.
1: But here's the thing is that I mean, I love the analogy of athletics because I just think that there is something that every athlete understands that there is just no workout that doesn't include some pain point. There's no growth at all that doesn't include some suffering on some level, right? If you want to become better at anything athletically, you have to pay to play. Like it's how it works. Nobody gets to, that's, that's part of the club. Right. Isn't that part of the world that you inhabit? We're like the only someone who does what you do knows what you go through to, to do it. So, you know, I think that same in our inner world, it's the same thing. Like there's in the breakthrough, it's, it can be a dark night. You can go through that sort of dark and isolating place, but in the emergence of that is like, you've now broken through to something really beautiful and a whole new level of understanding of oneself and developmental maturity.
0: Yeah. I think that a lot of times we've been taught or we tend to block out negative emotions or even anger, which can be, I don't know if that's positive or negative emotion, but we just don't want to feel those things. And a lot of times that can be really harmful to you and you can miss out a lot in your life if you don't experience those negative, I don't even like using the word negative, but those maybe like heavier, yeah, heavier emotions Mm -hmm. or just the ones that just don't feel as good. So what advice do you have for people who do struggle to feel pain or just these challenging feelings that they try to block out? I,
1: I mean, I speak as a fellow, I I would let's avoid the uncomfortable emotions. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I don't recommend avoiding it because you get yourself into you know, a corner in your life, at some point you'll hit a wall with that there's like, there's no way out but through. But I think normalizing emotions and emotions both on either end of the spectrum, the ones that maybe feel easier or more that are more welcome and the ones that are more unwelcome, they're biochemical waves. They're like the weather, they pass. I think the scariest thing for when we're in a spell where we're feeling a difficult emotion is like the feeling that it will never go away. I'll always feel like this you know, this grief I'm feeling will never go away. This anxiety I'm feeling will never go away, you know, that it will persist. And I think one of the things that makes engaging in a difficult workout easier psychologically is that there is a degree of guarantee, certainty that the discomfort that you will feel that you invariably will feel will end. You know, it will end, you know, when the bike rides over, it won't hurt so much. Or when you've climb to the peak, you've kind of the hard parts over, so to speak. Right. So maybe that gives you a little bit more of a sense of control. And I think with emotional waves, you know, it people feel a little bit less certainty of like, oh my gosh, this thing is just, it's never going to stop. This shame I'm like a wave of shame with like the worst feeling in the world. So horrible. Right. Does not feel good. And crawl under wherever you are, you just want to crawl under something. It doesn't feel awesome, but it ends it doesn't last forever. It actually just, it's a biochemical wave. It, 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 it uh, you know hits a crescendo and then it sort of begins to recede if we're not resisting it so hard, you know, and just letting it wash over us. So the more skillful we become in being able to engage with our emotions is just allowing them to be present, being present with them without so much resistance, the less intimidating they become, the less scary they become. Like we just increase our tolerance to be able to withstand them and just be able to be present with them.
0: Yes. And I think there's a rumination piece. It creates this lingering effect of some of these emotions and you just, you feel the emotion, but then you keep thinking about it and keep making stories about it. And then it becomes this thing that isn't just 90 seconds long. It becomes this thing that goes on and on and on in our mind.
1: Absolutely. Right. Like every, that is where, you know, In my world, like doing mind work is so important because every single time you retell that same story, you're just reactivating that same emotional loop over and over and over again. Right. So, and that's what feels so intimidating. But we actually have so much autonomy when it comes to our minds. We really do. You know, I I mean, the tail is wagging the dog for most of us, but we really can develop the skill set to be the dog wagging the tail.
0: So we have the M and the A left. Oh yeah. So, and, yeah. so,
1: right. And actually this leads us the, you know, what we were talking about with relationships leads to the M, which is um, meaning, meaning purpose, living a meaningful life, living a purposeful life. So essential to living a good life is feeling that what we do, what we do on this planet matters and it doesn't just matter to us. It matters to other humans that that our presence here in some way impacts somebody else in some positive way, feeling connected to that larger web of humanity is deeply important to our well-being, And, uh, and I, which I think is such a beautiful, a beautiful thing. So being in touch and, and often the things that feel most meaningful to us are, are often the things that were most painful or they can be most painful, you know?
0: Yeah. That's there's something a whole that literature I... on post-traumatic
1: strength and, or post-traumatic growth rather.
0: Yeah. That's something I do some keynote speaking. And that's something that I often say is think of the thing that you're most proud of in your life. That's often something that you had to work really hard for. And there was stress and challenge and it wasn't this happy thing that just that you did. It's like you had to go all in on something and it was painful, but you're so proud of that at the end.
1: Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. That, that feeling of overcoming, of enduring something challenging, difficult, emerging from a difficult period of your life in a new way and feeling like I'm a different person because I experienced this and my life is psychologically richer. I understand myself more. I have more empathy for other human beings. I found a new gear, an inner gear that I didn't even know I had.
0: I like the term psychologically rich life that's something that I've been learning more about. Can you elaborate more on that? Um I'm not
1: sure who exactly I'm like who coined this. I think it's a Japanese researcher, but in any case, who who writes a lot on positive psychology. But the concept is just really looking at instead of talking about well-being happiness, but it's really looking at what's a good life and it's looking at well-being from this eudaimonic perspective. It's not just about feeling good, but it's about, you know, living a life that feels that is abundant in meaning and, and relationships and all the things that make life worth living, that there is sort of, you know, it's the full symphony. It's not just two notes, two little cheerful notes. Like that's not an interesting piece of work, right? If we're going to go listen to a great piece of music, we want the full experience right we want the highs and the lows and the flats and we want to hear it all together in harmony but there's depth to it and i think that is this idea of like, what does it mean to live a life that's beyond just this sort of surface level of you know good vibes and and everything feeling pleasant all the time because a life that feels pleasant all the time isn't
0: actually that pleasant <laughs> Yeah, some of this conversation reminds me of just some of the work that Scott Barry Kaufman has done, Mm -hmm. and then also some of the writing that Arthur Brooks has done. And I'm just throwing those names out there for people who want to take this a step further, so they can continue on their path if they're listening to this.
1: Yeah, I was just listening to something that I'm actually so excited—he's coming out to. I live in Sun Valley, Idaho, and he's coming out here to give a talk in a few weeks. And I'm going. I'm going with my mom, I'm dragging oh, awesome. my mom and dad to it. So I'm so excited. Actually I wish I could this. go. <laughs> I know He's really interesting. Yeah. I I, I don't know. Um, I'm not so well-versed in, in Arthur books, but I know he, I was listening to something and he was talking about it from more of a theological perspective of, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas and Summa Theologica and more from sort of like what are the idols that lead us down the wrong path but the the psychological literature really backs up the almost exactly the same thing which is fame wealth you know image those are things that are going to they're extrinsically motivated i mean this is like brings us to the a right the achievement like those are the goals if we set goals that are extrinsically motivated it's going to diminish our well-being and there's a really robust body of literature on this so there was nothing new under the sun. We're, we're we're using the scientific method now to explore some of these questions, but great theologians and philosophers and, you know, spiritual teachers have been asking these same questions for thousands of years.
0: it kind of sounds like the A should be like almost like mastery and even mastery of self. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, exactly right. I mean, I think that's really what Seligman means with achievement, that it's a sort of like it's achievement, but like you know, couched in self-acceptance that it's achievement coming from a place of what turns you on, what, what makes you come alive. Like what's possible? really leaning into what would be possible for me, um, from that expansive place, not what must I prove to earn my worthiness, you know, to hustle for my worthiness, which I think so many high achievers are doing.
0: Yeah. It's something that I wrestle with all the time and just even having the awareness around it, I find is very helpful. (laughs)
1: Definitely. Definitely. And again, like this is why this work is, there's so much nuance here because, you know, it's to say like, oh, all achievement is excellent. It's like, not necessarily, you know, there's so much, and everyone's journey is so different. There's a lesson, there's a different lesson in it for everyone. But I think that's also sort of what makes this so exciting is, you know, for one person saying, let not training so hard is the work for someone else, it's actually making, getting themselves to train, right? How do we know which is which we have to understand the person and we have to understand the sort of like their web of meaning and what they've been doing and why, and what their story is like, it's, there's sort of universal truths. That's the science of this. We're always looking for what's generally true, right? We're looking for the laws of human behavior and understanding them. And there are And then, but the art of what I do and what anyone who's in the healing world of doing inner work with human beings is, or growth and development is like, there's the science of it, but the art of it is the individual story, right? And like, how do those two things interplay? And that's where the juiciness is always.
0: I wanted to ask you because you have your PhD in developmental psychology, but you're also a life coach. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And like the, the crossover point, like that's something that in my health coaching program, I, there's a health coaching program I did at Vanderbilt. And that is something that we have to define in our practices. What's the difference between coaching and therapy? So for you, like you have, you're a coach, but you also have a PhD in psychology. So how do you separate the two or do you separate the two whenever you're working with people?
1: It's a really good question. And it's increasingly a conundrum, right? Like where do we draw a line? Um, is there a line? It's a good question for me i would draw the line in terms of my work is i really focus on growth development and you know enhancement and really wor- working with someone on like who's their future self and walking out towards their future self and that is like the walking piece is important that there's an action to be taken that there is they're taking action toward that vision of what they're holding as a possibility for themselves and I really don't engage in at all. Like I I have other experts that will speak to things that would fall in my mind under the auspices of anything that is disease disorder dysfunction, anything that feels clinical to somebody or even frankly trauma. And by the way, like these two things work in tandem. I think having a great psychotherapist and having a great coach can work so well together. There's different modalities. It's like And I, this is, I I'm borrowing this wonderful phrase from George Valiant, who's also adult developmental psychologist and Robert Keegan is the other sort of giant in the field. And, you know, in, in talking with George Valiant, I was asking him like, you know, what are your thoughts about your theory and, and Robert Keegan's like, how do they work together? And he was like, "We're, we're looking at the same sky. We're just describing the clouds in a different way and i and i sort of feel like the work of you know therapy and coaching can be in some way described in the same way it's like my tools are different my approach is different my boundaries of sort of where i go and where i don't go are different than a trained psychotherapist and i think that those are really important lines to understand right like where where is there someone who when you can identify sometimes i think some of my job is identifying like hey this is something that maybe you want to explore in a deeper way with someone who's that this is their specific skill set to work with you on this topic.
0: You alluded to some skills that you work on with clients in group coaching and maybe even individuals. We have a few minutes left. Can you pick your favorite tool and tell us about it?
1: My favorite tool is just very simply using a, it's a sort of derivative of a CBT model, making it linear. I call it the steer map it's an, a homonym. So it sounds like what it means, but it's spelled incorrectly. So S-T-E-A-R, but it's just a tool to use for self-distancing to be able to take what's in your brain and look at it on paper to become more skillful in managing your mind, which by the way, every human being needs to become more skillful in managing their mind. This is not something for people that think they have broken brains. This is for everyone. There is no class that we get on learning to manage this wild thing that we have on our shoulders. It's completely ludicrous to me that we don't take it more seriously. Like, how do we actually wrangle this thing in? One of my favorite ways is using Searmap. So is just sort of taking this sort of linear, you know, writing down what's the specific situation, just the facts, right? Just like, as if you're Walter Cronkite reporting the news, you know, like I finished a race at X time or, you know, whatever the thing is. And then that external situation, that specific situation activates a thought. What's the thought, right? There's maybe will be a number of ones, We you can just pick one. You pop it in. Like, what's the thought that that specific situation activates? The thought that you're thinking will then generate an emotion. Our thoughts create emotions. Emotions are physical sensations plus a cognitive interpretation. So we can have physical sensations, but we have to like decide what that thing is you know, there's, there's a cognitive aspect to our emotions. So our, our thoughts then create our emotions. And then the emotion that we're feeling is what tells our body what to do. So our emotions then create our actions. So you can look like, okay, I had this thought, it created this emotion. The action I took from that emotion was this. And then what would those actions, what was the result? What's the R that I created from that or from those actions. It's just a very simple way of, you know, taking this sort of very messy stuff that's happening in our brain and in a reductive way, putting it in something more linear and looking at it. And often what you will see is that there was a bi-directional relationship between the result and the thought that your thought kind of, you create the result with your thought and then the result that you get often reinforces the thought. It sort of proves it true. So you, you create this, you know, what we call confirmation bias which is how we get into loops and do the same thing over and over again, right? In this kind of like, why do we do this again? That's why. So it's just a way of taking what's in your brain and just putting it on paper and looking at it. And you can get really skillful and playful with this tool. And then, you know, you can really play around with it. Like, okay, if I wanted to create this result, like let's work our way backwards. Like what might the thought and emotion be that would generate the action, right. To create this result that I want to, that I'm trying to accomplish. So it's also a way of sort of reverse engineering. Like what might it look like if I was to create a different result, what might I need to think and feel to create a different result?
0: Yeah. It sounds like that could be something really cool to combine with Jud Brewer's habit loop. Are you familiar with him? And no. uh, uh-uh. uh, You should check him out. I think you'd really like it. His latest awesome. book is called unwinding a- anxiety. And he- he has another book called the craving mind, but basically he has a lab and he works at Brown university and they study behavior change and the cue trigger reward loop. But he says anxiety is actually a habit loop. So you can map out your anxiety as a habit loop. And it sounds like you could also fit that into the steer map tool to develop more insight from that.
1: Definitely. Anxiety is a really interesting one because it's normally something we're, we're anticipating some unpleasant, something that we don't, Right. So it's like, we're, we're feeling anxiety in advance of that thing that we think is going to happen or that we're and Right. So it's a protective, it's like a crust over our emotions in this funny way. So by the way, for those of you that are like, I don't like feeling bad feelings. No, thanks. I guarantee you struggle with anxiety guarantee yeah. <laughs> because if you're afraid of feeling any of disappointment, sadness, grief, you know, disappointment, shame, vulnerability. If you're like, no, thank you to those emotions. You are just signing up for tons of anxiety because like you that like, right. The dread of the fear of feeling that I'm going to anticipate that I'm going to one day, I might feel disappointed or I might feel embarrassed or I might feel shame is what is like. That's
0: what's activating all the anxiety. So there's so much. We could just talk all day. I, think, I, I like geeking out about all this it's stuff. The best. <laughs> so good. It's really
1: the best. It's really the best. I, it, there's so, you know, I, I just want to elevate this conversation and which is exactly what you're doing, which I love so much about, you know, becoming more skillful at living and managing our own humanness. and And I think that it's gotten sort of like relegated to this pejorative, cheesy, like self-help, you know, guru-y blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that, like, this is deeply important. What's more important than understanding what makes life worth living or what a good life is, or growing and developing and maturing as an adult? Nothing, nothing is more important than this. It's it's like, you know, our, the health of our kids is deeply connected to our own growth and development, the health of our world, the health of our communities and so on and so forth. So, you know, to me, this is like, this is the central conversation.
0: Yeah. I think it's scary because people might have to shift what their North star is when they realize that maybe that North star isn't contributing to a life where they feel more well being or they feel more fulfilled or when they're at the end of their life, like you talked about at the very beginning, am I proud of the life that I lived? Mm Mm-hmm
1: yeah, but I think right. it is a daunting thing where you think, oh my gosh, if I actually, you know, pull the veil back and start, you know, actually looking at this and, and getting and getting curious about myself. What am I going to find? And that so maybe feels daunting and scary. But the reality is that there's just so much richness on the other side of it of you know of developing into a much more mature developmental stage. There's developmental stages in adulthood just as there are in childhood. So you know you're not going to have the same brain, the same mind that is concerned about the things that you're concerned about today if you're engaged in this process of growth and development, you won't have the same mind in 10 years. You'll see the world differently. The lens through which you see things absolutely changes. You have these Copernican perspective shifts over time.
0: And I'll bring in Arthur Brooks. I'm still working on his book from strength to strength, but he talks about crystallized intelligence. And that happens as you get a lot older. And that's different from the type of intelligence you have when you're younger. Definitely.
1: And wisdom is not correlated with age. So we don't just get, we just don't magically become wiser as we, as we age. Sorry, guys. No, it's, we have to engage with ourselves and we have to actually ask ourselves these very tough questions of like, okay, in my twenties, I thought like achievement was everything. And I needed to grab these brass rings. And if I achieve these things, then everything would be amazing. But then I did and not everything was amazing. You know? Uh-oh, what does that mean? Well, like the wise person is going to start asking questions, you know, as opposed to, well, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep on this achievement treadmill until I fall off, right? So the more we're engaging with ourselves and asking questions of like, why doesn't this feel awesome? Like I'm succeeding in the eyes of the world. Like everyone's telling me that I'm doing great, but it doesn't feel good to me. Isn't that interesting? Right, And there are a lot of brilliant therapists, sports psychologists, psychotherapists, coaches that I think can just do, you know, be wonderful partners and allies in this work of like digging into our inner world and our own adult development.
0: I think that's a really great place to wrap this up. Where can people find you if they want more? I hang out on Instagram. My handle is
1: D-R-S-A-S-H-A-H-E-I-N-Z. So Dr. Sasha Hines, and then also my website, drsashahines.com. And in, I'm so excited because right now it's just an alumni community, but in October, starting October 1st, we're opening up Mind Your Mind, like Mind Gym for women to everyone. So we'll be launching that as a, as a larger community in, in October. And I'm really excited about this because I think your question about coach versus, you know, I have so much reverence for my colleagues that are therapists and the work that they do. And I think my work as a coach really is the work of praxis. It's really getting people like in the arena, in the gym, practicing it, getting more skillful, learning the tools, you know, that really is my mission.
0: Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing all this great knowledge. And I'm excited for all of the listeners to take their next steps. That oh, was so much fun. Had this conversation. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I certainly got a lot out of this and there were some fun follow-up conversations that I had with Dr. Sasha after recording this podcast episode. We would love to hear what landed well with you. So make sure that you tag us on social media so we can see what your key takeaways were and what you learned. I'm so grateful that you are a part of my community and that you are choosing to listen to this podcast amongst all of the amazing shows that are out there in the internet world right now. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you next week.